Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woo-hoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woo-hoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! including the rise of national populism and democratic socialism, what our response should be. It is available on Post Hill Press or Amazon.com. And you, well, get the book because, quite frankly, if you want to know what's going on in the elections and what are going on with the various trends of both the left and the right, uh, this book accurately describes exactly what's going on with data to back it up. So again, the rise of national populism and democratic socialism, and then what our response should be post-tail press. All right, what I'm going to do here tonight is we're going to, we got a lot of uh, discuss is hopefully, like I say, as soon as Coco gets here, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, you know we're, I'm going to get her views on COVID. Where we, should we, you know, lock down? Do we redo the lockdown, shutdown? What's her views? Where do we go from here? Uh, we'll pause. You know, I'll wait for her to talk about the Supreme Court. We'll look at some of the uh, economic data. And what I would like to do is is kind of look at some economic data, and we'll kind of – and then we'll talk about some of the foreign policy that nobody's yet talked about, uh, uh, Trump's moves in the Middle East. And anybody – by the way, anybody who's been listening to the Donaldson files would know exactly what's going on, namely that the Trump administration is putting together what I would call – a anti-Iranian coalition with Sunni Arabs in Israel, and that's the reason why they're making peace with each other. You know, the old comment, the enemy of my, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and and we'll discuss that further. Uh, we're going to kind of talk about culture and life in general under Iowa and California, what's going on with their COVID. So I'd like to kind of, and we did get, let's say, some of Kyle Hester's input, and we will also get, let's say, uh, from Coco and see what she thinks and saying as well, uh, and plus a few other things here and there. So that's where we're at here. Uh, like I say, I'm, so here's the thing. I'm going to start off with this. I, I do want to talk about last night's show because I thought it was a great show. We had three great guests, Kyle Hester, Cece Harrison, and Pam the Swamp, uh, the Swamp Girl. And I thought they all did a nice job of explaining their point of view and the impact of COVID and the impact of COVID, you know, what they thought we should go from, you know, where to go from there. And also, and we had some lively discussions as well. So I think, you know, so I think it's a show worth doing. And, and, and I want you to take notes right now. I want you, everybody take notes right now. If you have any questions or comments, you can call 646-929-0130. 
646-929-0130. Or you can tweet. If you're on Twitter right now, you can go to the Donaldson Files. To the Donaldson Files on Twitter, at Donaldson Files on Twitter. You can do that as well. Uh, and we do have a website, DonaldsonTFiles.com. So, but I want you to take notes down, folks. I, I want you to get your pen and pencil. I'm going to give you about uh, two seconds or three seconds to do that. One second, two seconds, three seconds. Okay. You got your three seconds. Here's the deal. You can listen to this show, bachelornews.airtime.pro. Bachelornewsairtime.pro. Let me spell that for you just to make sure. The Bachelor News, B A T C H E L O R, news.airtime.pro. And, and we have two opportunities every day to listen to this show. At 10 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning. Or if you're on the Pacific Coast, midnight and 7 a.m. in the morning. So if you write all this down, the reason why I want you to do it, because last night's show was an interesting show. And mainly because we had a wide variety of experience, a wide variety of points of view. I started, you know, with where we're at, you know, the list of data, red states, blue states, lockdown versus non-lockdown. Uh, I, I discussed all that, and then okay, Kyle Hester gave his view, and and gave his made his case essentially for the California approach, which is still you know, kind of a shutdown. I always use the word complete shutdown because they're gradually opening. I know I was told by Kyle we're going to be the restaurants will be opening sometime next week, twenty five percent capacity, indoors. Uh, but it's slowly opening up. But the reality was, is essentially a you know there is a lock. I'm going to use the word they're very behind a lot of other states, you know, Pam, Columbia, South Carolina, and the Columbia, and you know talked about their experiences and basically defended the more lighter approach to South Carolina. And so, and I think they have we had some really good discussion along those lines. We also had a great discussion. Uh, C.C. Harrison talked about. You know, it's a mental health issue, and it's something that's you know people rarely talk about. I mean, this has not been in the consideration, but it should be because the lockdown has had an impact from an economic, not just an economic perspective, but a healthcare perspective as well. I made the statement on this show several you know a couple you know several months ago that we may end up killing more people through the lockdown as opposed to the virus itself. And I think we're starting to see that with increased suicide, increased opiate addictions. Uh, we're seeing delayed treatments. Uh, JAMA just had a recent article on delayed treatments for cancer therapy as an example. Uh, there was a case, there was another journal that had a case study of various heart kids where they tracked down heart patients who had died because they didn't get treatment because of the fear of COVID. You know, they were more afraid of getting COVID that of their heart disease, which ended up killing them. And so these are, and she talked about the mental health and the fact that it, it, the way she put it was, you know, families being together, as she said, what sounds like a good idea, what sounds like a good idea, 
and uh, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, she said there's a lot of stress and strain that comes in because basically you're putting families in a enclosed situation for a long period of time. So we have that. We have that as well. So we are looking. Uh, and so that was. So those are some of the interesting things we came up. In other words, and then we had a kind of an interesting conversation at the very end, uh, kind of dealing with, let's say, one of the aspects that that came up was the number. Let's say how many billionaires like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. And how their wealth has actually increased during the pandemic, while a good portion of us have seen their wealth, most of us have seen our wealth shrink. So, and she kind of brought that point up and kind of, and from that point, uh, she, uh, and, and we got into a lively discussion because she kind of made it clear, no, was this all planned? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if she was thinking the virus is planned to do this or the fact that they, the rich, you know, the, you know, the ultra-rich took advantage of this to increase their own market shares at the expense of Main Street. And there was a lively conversation between her and Kyle Hester. So, and I thought that was, again, it, so it made for an interesting conversation. So let me repeat this again. You can listen to this show 3 a.m. and 10 a.m on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you want to make any comments on this show tonight, uh, 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. This is Tom Donaldson on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Yes, and also, uh, welcome, listeners, back to the Donaldson Files, and also, don't forget... The Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. The show discusses issue, race, politics, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect brown, black, and poor people negatively. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, blocktalkradio.com, L.A. Bachelor. Rebroadcast every day, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Hey, interested in having your own show? You want to advertise on our show? And that's spelled B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R-40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. Okay, I'm still, like I say, uh, uh, Coco has got a doctor's appointment. She's still at the doctor's, but she's rushing. Uh, Hopefully uh, she can get this thing done as quickly as possible. So, and uh, she'll be joining us. Uh, But in the meantime, all right. 
Okay, so like I said, I'm going to basically to say, hopefully she can get on, and I'm going to try to save the Supreme Court stuff for her uh, a little bit later here. Okay, so, okay, now. All right, uh, here's an interesting thought. And I'm going to kind of talk about this because we discussed this in the past, you know, over the past couple of years, where you've seen an outreach of, in the, you know, outreach to the Arab world and Israeli, you know, the, the recent recognition of many Arab states of Israel. Uh, let me kind of put this in a kind of a background information. thing that I want to kind of put in place here is this. This is a policy with design. There is a design to this policy, and it basically comes down to this. It comes down to this. Administration did not agree with the Iranian, Obama-Biden Iranian policies. And one of the issues is nuclear, you know, nuclear was the nuclear weapon side of the equation. The other issue was Iranian expansion into the Middle East, their expansion of Syria, their expansion within Lebanon, the expansion of the Gaza Strip, and also their expansion in Yemen through the civil war sitting on the border of Saudi Arabia. We saw what we saw was a court was, in effect, an outreach. And it began very simply because in the past, it's always been, well, you have to deal with the Palestinians issue before you deal with the Arabs and Israelis. And I think what the Trump administration surmised correctly, and others did not, they surmised correctly was a lot of the Arab states themselves especially the Sunni states, were no longer that excited about supporting Palestine. They, in effect, got sick of the Palestinians. They have used Palestinians for years as a wedge against Israel, but there was a point in time where enough is enough. They were not getting any benefit from it. And certainly, as when you look at the Gaza Strip, uh, you were looking at Iranian influence coming into play. There was that aspect that came into play. It's like one of those things that was there. This administration saw it, what others didn't see. When people, when Trump moved the capital to Jerusalem, again, this was considered a big mistake, but I think it sent a message that we're changing the policy, we're changing the things. And I think what it came down to was the Iranian threat within the region became a much more dangerous threat than worrying about Israel. And this is essentially what you're seeing. It's not just about peace between Israel and the Arab states, but it's also the building of a coalition. Arabs and Israelis take the front line against any further Iranian encroachment. And on top of that, on top of that, you had 
a similar strategy. You also had a strategy of what I would use the word economic warfare, if you want to put it that way. The sanctions were specifically designed to weaken the economic side of the Iranians. And people have to remember, and, and I want to kind of explain this carefully because I want to make sure we're in this stand, is that the Iranians, by the lifting of sanctions in the Obama-Biden administration, got access to hundreds of billions of dollars into their coffer, much of it being used into the Middle East among, let's say, not just Israel, but some of the Sunni competition, like Saudi Arabia, to the Iranian, to the Iranians. So, so what we were seeing in effect, what we were seeing in effect, was a you know a in effect was something totally different, namely, the Arab nations viewed the Iranian threat much more seriously. And in the case of the Trump administration and those within the Trump administration, like Mike Pipeo, I saw this as an opportunity to not just form an anti-Iranian coalition, but begin the process of the fall between Israel and the Arab states. This is essentially what we were witnessing. This is what we were witnessing. And so I want people to understand exactly what was occurring or what is occurring. Because it's the kind of stuff you don't read in the mainstream media. It's the kind of stuff you very rarely read in a lot of media journals. But you have to understand the policy that is. This is a purposely designed policy, whether you agree with it or not. It's a perfectly designed policy. The Iranians today economically are strapped. The sanctions are having their impact. And they're in a similar situation they were in 2009, where, again, sanctions you know, had in 2009 had the Iranians in an impact. So this is the – and so, in effect, what you're seeing is a double edge: the economic sanction weakening the economic – of the Iranians basically, in effect, taking funds out of the Iranian pocket to continue their their policies within the Middle East. Number two, you're seeing an Israeli-Sunni alliance that is specifically designed to basically not just strengthen the alliance, but it does something else. Because whenever Donald Trump was elected to start the pullout of American troops out of the Middle East, not to start new wars, that's why you're looking at the, you know, the, you're looking at Afghanistan. If he gets reelected, uh, we will probably pretty much have a pullout of Afghanistan, declare victory, and leave. You're seeing of already reducing our footprints in Iraq, so you're leaving something behind, namely. You're leaving a coalition that has an interest in an anti-Iranian coalition, and basically this is their territory. This is their land. They're the ones on the front line, which leads me to yet another interesting point, which, again, is going to be part of this election, energy policy. 
we are at the point. I hate to use – I'm not going to use the word energy independence because that's not necessarily the correct phraseology because there's no such thing in my view of independence per se. But we are becoming an energy exporter. We're no longer in fall or needing OPEC to supply our needs. We're at that point energy-wise that we no longer have the necessity of depending upon Saudi Arabia for our oil, per se, for our energy, per se. Between natural gas, oil, we have more than enough here, and we're exporting. you got to remember, too, we're not just the United States. But years ago, I had a conversation with a gentleman in the oil business in Dallas, and he put it to me this way. He was a uh, – okay. He was uh, – and he talked about the word NAPAC, North America Petroleum Exporting Countries. And he was talking Mexico, Canada, and the United States, in effect, taking on OPEC. So that and, – and this is, again, the energy aspect because it comes down to this. The Biden plan is, in fact, moving away from natural gas, fracking. And I guess it depends on what day of the week it is in Pennsylvania, whether Joe, you know, the Biden-Harris plan you know, originally was no fracking. And I guess when they campaign in you know, Pennsylvania, it is they favor fracking. But the reality was, and that means, in effect, we'll be back to depend, you know, in the long run, dependent upon energy sources outside the United States. Because I'll give you a little secret here, folks. There's no way that you'll replace our energy needs presently stupid with just wind and solar. It's that simple. It's not going to happen. There's not enough wind. Wind and solar are inefficient. inefficient. When you add them to the energy grid, they're more expensive, and they're much dependent upon when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. You need alternative energy sources, mostly natural gas, coal and nuclear. So that is the uh, the other aspect of this to this whole thing because the entire strategy, the entire strategy that we're witnessing energy independence or energy that let's say I'm gonna use can I have said that it is the, 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 our Middle East policy today is based on the fact that we have options we didn't pass because we don't have the same need to get our energy from Saudi Arabia. We have more than enough to basically provide here in the U.S. And number two, it is, in fact, an anti-Iranian slash coalition that is, the under, that is undergirding the entire policy of this administration. So this is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And I want you to listen to this very important public service announcement. Listen to it carefully because we're going to we'll listen to this very carefully. 
I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That's right. Get your flu shot, ladies and gentlemen. I've already gotten my flu shot. I got my flu shot. And let me explain to you some of the reasons why. First of all, number one, it's not just about senior citizens, but if you have children and grandchildren, make sure they get a flu shot too. Because because if you look at the data, the data that we're seeing, we didn't see it very clearly that younger children, school children, are actually more susceptible to the flu than they are to COVID, which is the complete opposite of people my age. But it's important for you know, people my age. It's important for children. It's important for everybody. Get your flu shot. Even if it's not perfect, you'll reduce the chances of getting the flu, reduce the chances of spreading the flu. For those of us my age, it might also help in diagnosis. If you come in with some very – with some symptoms, you can always tell your doctor, hey, doctor, I had a flu shot, and that doctor may choose to go look for COVID and, and, and work on the assumption, okay, it may not be the flu. Let's go look for something else. It gives them a diagnosis tool. So understand that, folks. Get your flu shot. And on the line is my good friend, Dr. Larry. Dr. Larry, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm not too bad. I'm Like I said, we're waiting, right? I mean, the, the, our issue is very simple. You know, Coco uh, you know, called me a couple hours ago that she was in, in the doctor's office, and she just texted me about 20, you know, right at the beginning of the show that she's still in the office, but she's, Gonna, she's rushing as quickly as possible to get to the show. Appreciate you coming on because I do want to get to pick pick your brains here. I just started. I, I just started dealing with the, you know, one of the things that nobody talks about is, you know, the the you know the Trump policy in the Middle East. You know, I kind of made the point to the audience that this was part of a, what I would call an anti-Iranian coalition where the Sunnis, Arabs, have just made the decision, you know, you know, a friend of my friend is my enemy. In other words, yeah, let's make peace with Israel. We're not going to make an issue. We're not going to worry about, you know, the Palestinian issue. That can wait for another day and because we have a much greater threat in Iraq. And I, and I made the point that, you know, you know that the Trump administration solved it. Plus, when you add the fact of our energy I hate to use the word independent, but our energy, you know, development has given us options we have not had in decades for policymakers. And do you agree with some of the things? What's your thoughts? First of all, do you agree with what I'm saying? And if not, if so, say uh, explain why. If not, explain why. I I, th- I think that it's a great insight, frankly, into the. Uh... What you what uh, they used to call the real politic uh, 
of the Middle East right now, and that is, you mentioned that Iraq was the uh, was the was a new uh, major threat. I think you meant Iran. Um, I meant Iran. Yeah, I'm sorry, Iran. Yeah, but I read a German commentary on that uh, subject here just a, a couple of days ago, and they were, he was, guy was uh, excoriating uh, the, uh, Brit- the uh, European Union because he said they're still, they're still working on the old assumption that the major problem in the Middle East is uh, the, uh, uh, is the, is the uh, Palestinian problem. And uh, it, actually, we've come beyond that now, and we're now talking about uh, the, the difference between the Shia and the and the uh, Sunni, with uh, Iran taking a very very aggressive st- step. And uh, and I think he's right, and, and I think you're right. I think that, and I think uh, that uh, Donald Trump saw this long before anybody else did, including me. Uh, but I, I think he's absolutely correct because uh, the, the what what kind of power do the Palestinians actually have beyond the power to just make uh, trouble uh, for uh, for Israel and and what is it compared to the power of Iran, which by the way now it looks more and more like they're going to be able to enlist Turkey in their in their uh, efforts, which is a big big problem. But uh, they, look what they did in Syria. Yeah, so I, I, I think there's no and, and there, the, uh, the the uh, problem in Somalia is is uh, just getting worse and worse. So uh, I, I I would just uh, add all these footnotes to your uh, to your opinion, Tom. No, that's a good point. And let's talk about Turkey because I mean it's not just Somalia but also Libya because basically Turkey is doing what everybody else doesn't want them to do. Yeah, you know, they're almost kind of keeping up the chaos there. You know, they're whereas other countries are kind of just saying, let's just kind of keep this thing low. Rid. I mean, if you're Egypt, you're looking across the border. The last thing you want is a chaotic Libya, and they certainly have putting their footprints there as well. And you, you make that point. You know that is there a Turkey Iranian reproachment? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, go ahead. I, yeah, I think Libya is kind of up for grabs, <clears throat> and I think Iraq is too. I think Iraq has a, you know, even as we pull out after all the uh, blood and treasure that we spent to liberate uh, the uh, Iraqi people from uh, Saddam Hussein, um, it looks not, you know, they've been leaning more and more toward Iran, but. With us gone, uh, then they really have to make a decision. Are they going to stick with the new coalition, uh, which is mostly uh, uh, Sunni, by the way, and uh, or are they are they going to really uh, formalize their relationship with Iran? And and I I don't think I don't I think the the, the, the uh, uh, I think the, the the story is is not told yet as to how that is actually going to happen. That's a good point. I mean, the other thing, because basically in the case of Iraq, you have about three different, you have the Kurds, you have the Sunnis, you got the Shiites, who makes about 60%. But there's, there's, but there's one little extra effort in there, is that Iraqis are Arabs. Exactly. And the Iranian, And the Iranians, Iranians are, are not. not. Right. And so you, and so there's always been that 
as an obstacle. Plus, plus the might, the new might of the uh, uh, the Americans. You know, I, that, I think that's played a big part in the fact that Saudi and all their friends are starting to line up with us. If we had still the uh, uh, apologetic uh, kind of uh, foreign policy and uh, and and the declining uh, military power that we had under Obama, I don't think this would have ever happened. All right. But let me kind of follow with something on that because, uh, I mean, like I said, we rarely talk about foreign policy. And it's one of those things, but it's a time, but yet it's front and center. It's not, I won't say front and center, but it ought to be. Uh, because it's not, because here's the other aspect. I'm going to throw this out to you. Because I've always thought that, I've always thought that one aspect of the policy that we're looking at is that the Trump administration basically came to one conclusion, namely China is our biggest geopolitical threat in the world today. And any up, and and I've always thought that there's a part of the strategy of the Trump administration was, you know, the less footprints in the Middle East, the more we can concentrate on probably the bigger threat long term, which is China. Uh, well, plus the fact that China is very active in the Middle East. You know, so they are because they're. I mean, they're yeah, backing know, Iran and Syria to the hill. Yeah. yeah, they're basically. I think they're the aren't they like the number one buyer of Iranian oil? Yeah, what's left? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing because here's the question that comes into play here because I mean to me, the Trump administration was, you know, we need to be, you know, we need to put our, you know, is it a question do we need to put our resources over here? Because the more resources and blood we're putting in the Middle East, the less we have dealing with a much greater threat that's going to be a greater threat to us down the road. And, uh, But I think that – and I've always thought that that was part of the foreign policy as well, that there, it's a combination of both. And certainly, again, this is on the table in the election because, quite frankly, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, Biden's record on China – it's rather abysmal if you look at it in comparison. Huh. Huh. It's, it's, it's even negative, you know. I mean, if yeah. he, he he apparently uh, engineered the uh, the big deal with his son, uh, and they, he he went over to he went over to China with with in his father's airplane, and he came back. With the uh, control over what was it, three billion dollars? Uh, yeah, just uh, incredible. And then they started buying up. They used that money to start. He was the front man for buying up all these American companies, uh, and and actually using Chinese money to do it. And therefore, of course, they got major stakes in all these American companies. That, I mean, that 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 is a very very bad situation and it never should have happened and the fact that it happened with the with the uh complete collusion of the of the vice president uh the sitting vice president of the time and then now, now they're gonna they wanted to run for president i mean it, it, that's as bad as as having uh um uh the the, Cl- the clintons trying to run for for uh you know, for uh, for the presidency after having sold America down the river for 
a hundred million dollars. Oh, it's just yeah. it's just so corrupted. It just it just uh, it boggles yeah. the mind. Right, right. It boggles the mind, but it's yeah because it's always. You know, somebody would ask me. I said, "Well, you know, the man who's going to." Because I always said, you know, in the case of Joe Biden, the man who's going to entail integrity is the same man who basically, you know, whose family members have made a ton of money, uh, what I call Biden Incorporated. <laughs> you know, from his fifty years in office, it's not just Hunter. You know, you know the Joe Biden's brothers have done pretty well as well, uh, dealing with that. But that's another discussion for another time. But let me let me put the question back. Yeah, but let me kind of put it in this capacity, because you know it's is that you know what is a future China policy needs to be looking at? Because now you stated this, and I think it's a very important point you made because we talk about decoupling, and you've been one of the few who said there's you know this is not something that can be easily done without damage to the economy, you know, to our economy, unless you you know. Our economy, and you've kind of discussed this. So, so why kind of talk about some of the things you kind of discussed along those lines? Uh, you, uh, well, <clears throat> basically, I think that that our economy. Uh, are you talking about the uh, uh, energy problem, uh, or? Well, I tell you what uh, I'm talking about you. You wrote some article a while back dealing with China. Yeah. And. And let's say, and you kind of you listed some warnings. Here's what we need to watch out for when dealing with China, and you kind of indi- you know deal with China that it's not going to be so easy to decouple our economy from theirs, and that there are a lot of things that, you know, in other words, let's not put ourselves in a position where we end up with something that we can you know that runs out of control. Does that make well, sense? Yeah, I think that a lot of the issue is the fact that we had from really, I think it started, I guess, really full and full full throttle during the '90s when we had, which is about 30 years now. It's a, it's about a generation. In fact, it really started a little before that, but and that is the. Uh, uh, fascination with the Chinese market that American companies uh, saw and were encouraged by all of the foreign policy of the time. And because of that, we've got an intertwined, a lot of intertwining conditions in the uh, relationship, one of which is that China has uh, owes, owes a, 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 about a trillion dollars of our national debt, and if they suddenly decided to, you know, uh, call that or or do something about it, they actually have a lot of potentially a lot of power. Now, what's there? Also, reason not for them not to do that because of their uh, their trade relationships that they have with us, uh, which are now getting more and more fragile. But. Um, so that I mean that's one of the issues, but the major issue, frankly, is all of the Chinese uh, infiltration on American companies, um, and and that's in terms of both the uh, relocation of a lot of the uh, a lot of these factories. What was it, seventy thousand factories that have left the United States in the last uh, thirty yeah. years? 
and, yeah. and the fact that they left, many of them left for China and, and India, and uh, to the lesser extent, the Philippines and, and some of the other uh, smaller countries. But um, those, uh, and and what they what they they lost is the control, the American control over the technology that was being actually manufactured now in China, and so China's got all of that technology. Whether no matter what we do in the future, uh, you, you know it's too late. You, you can't close the barn door after the horses have been stolen um, and that is, is a really big problem and, and you got to give Trump credit for the fact that he's actually facing the problem anyway and he's making it more and more difficult for the apples and and uh, and the other com- countries that are, I mean uh, companies that have gone over to China and uh, it's it's a really really major problem and and they've used that technology now to build up their military and to the point where uh, they have the biggest navy in the world including us and they are now also have uh the long range rockets that uh can actually hit any target in the United States especially if you talk about the uh presence of all the nuclear submarines uh, that can launch these uh, these these weapons. So, I mean, the, the, the situation. And then now, on top of that, we've got this big uh, controversy going on, confrontation going on between uh, between uh, their president and our president over the uh, uh, the uh, COVID nineteen problem. And that that just happened this week. Both of them going to the United Nations and telling them, you know. It's the other guy's fault. So, I mean, how in the hell we're going to get out of this without a war is really going to be tricky. Yeah. Hold on to that thought. This is Tom Donson with, uh, uh, here at the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're at uh, Dr. Larry coming in to kind of follow up on some of the foreign policy things we've been talking about earlier in the show. Uh Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files uh, here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And also, don't forget, Life Cafe Broadcast, the Maximizing Life Worship Center, located at 2920 East Market Street in Greensboro, North Carolina. The broadcast features a Bible study-like atmosphere while taking a laid-back approach to learning the Word of God served with a free continental breakfast. Listen to the broadcast every Saturday evening at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, at thebasslandnews.airtime.pro. Hey, if you're interested in having your own show or advertising, uh, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. And advertisers, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to advertise on the Donaldson Files and Dr. Larry's show. Uh, again, contact Dr. labachelor40 at gmail.com, and we'll give you all the details you need. Uh, 
As I stated at the beginning of the show, I want you to get your pen and pencils out just in case you didn't do it the first time. I'm going to give you a count of three. One, two, three. All right. 3 a.m., 10 a.m., bachelornews.airtime.pro. Uh, 3 a.m., 10 a.m., every day from long. That's Eastern Standard Time. Pacific is midnight and 7 a.m. And, again, you can listen to last night's show, and you can also listen to this show throughout the rest of the week. Uh, so, you, so again, 3 a.m., 10 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And call in, 646-929-0130. And, uh, and call in right now because we still have... Uh, you know, 20 more minutes left, and we got Dr. Larry here who's going to, because he is the philosopher of, of public thoughts today. So, all right. Okay, back to, you know, back to where we were. Okay. I'm going to kind of finish up here. And, all right. So I guess to me the thing is this, the foreign policy, I mean, we talk about China, and you, you make kind of a situation, we're in that tricky situation with China. Well, yeah, and, and really, <clears throat> I think I think one of the priorities we have to uh, really concentrate on, and you got to give Trump for, for um, some credit for this, too, that, and that is India. If, if we can, if we can get India a, you know, clearly on our side in this whole confrontation with China, then we actually have uh, a, a major uh, uh, opponent of of, uh, of China of, and a traditional enemy, really. Although they've been kind of cozy lately, but and and here Trump Trump has got this. Uh, uh, this uh, new prime minister, uh, who's kind of kind of a partisan uh, Muslim, but nevertheless, uh, he, he's buddy buddy with with Trump, and so I think we've got a chance of doing that. But the the the, the bad side is, if China teams up with India, then we've got two thirds of the world's population against us, and that is not a good situation either. Well, here's the thing. Well, first of all, number one, India. Okay, the prime minister is Hindi, not uh, Muslim. Uh, oh, Hindi. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Hindi's, yeah. But here's the thing, because I think this was an absolute, I mean, again, it comes to the first one, let's understand India in this respect. Uh, you know, India has a border of about 1,000 miles in the Himalayas with China. And That's they've right. had already, they already had armed conflicts. I mean, they just had one the past, a few, about two or three months ago, they had a conflict on the border between China and India. And so they've had this since like 1962. They've had occasional armed incursions from the Chinese into India territory. So they, and, and certainly India and China has basically been in a closer relationship with Pakistan, which is, you know, you know again, sitting there on the border of India in particular. And the other aspect and, comes into play is, yeah, the other aspect, again, from a strategic point of view, 
India sticks right out there in the Indian Ocean, which basically puts, you know, from a geopolitical, yeah. very important area where, let's say, shipping goes through. And and also, uh, it puts a, a very definite boundary on uh, on uh, the, the South China Sea, too. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, all of this is, is, is really relevant. And and you know the the Indians really uh, they ought to be our our, our friends because uh, they are a democracy they are English speaking uh, and uh, and uh, we've never done anything you know against them like uh, e- even Israel I mean um, England has so uh, and I have a lot of Indian uh, people in in my family that have. Come, they're they're uh, some of them directly, and some of their um, ancestors have come from from India to the United States, and they're all you know they're all young old Americans. So um, I I just I, I just hope the heck we can really make this happen. And, and by the way, the other thing that Trump has done, which he didn't get a lot of publicity, is is he put himself in a position. Of uh, offering to admit, uh, to adjudicate that problem between India and Pakistan, and if we could get the both of those, that w- that would be very very helpful in our yeah. in our uh, standing up to China. Yeah, that would be because basically the one one it comes down is Kashmir. Kashmir is a you know like I say, there's an India and a Pakistan uh, Kashmir, and. And it's been one of those areas, like for 70 years, where India has put Kashmir as part of their country, you know, the Indian version as part of their country, even though it's a predominantly Muslim province. And Pakistan, for years, has tried to undermine India rule in Kashmir. So that's going to be kind of an interesting, you know, that would be, you know, if that could actually happen, that would be, you know, pretty good. I mean, great, to say the least. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I I think I'll make clear because one of the aspects that comes in play is that you know people do not realize the foreign policy of this administration. It's almost like the thing that nobody talks about. But there is an aspect to the policy from the Middle East dealing with China, and even if we go into Europe, because uh, I mean the, the question comes in play is that you know one of the things you know Trump basically said, well, hey, you know if you guys aren't going to spin your fair chair. You know, you know what? A, you know what? You know what are we doing there? But I do think that in that you're seeing something of another aspect, namely our relationship with those countries in Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, okay, as an example. Now we again we talk about let's say Germany is the 800-pound gorilla in the EU in the European side. But these countries, first of all, they're going on, on the front line against any aggressiveness by Putin and Russia. And you've seen, you know, a development of a relationship there. I mean, the recent troop pullout of Germany, half of those troops went back to the U.S., the other half went right into Poland. Uh, you, your thoughts? Yeah. That... Um... I, I, we, what we've done is, and of course, this is part of why 
why the whole State Department and the whole intelligence community has been so uh, hostile to Trump. And that is, he's overturned the uh, policy that the United States had toward uh, Europe, uh, which really started in 1948. And and that is that we're going to be the nuclear shield for uh, pretty much the no-cost nuclear shield for uh, for, uh, Europe uh, against Russia. And, of course, the reason for that at the time was that Russia had a standing army that was all set to take over the whole of Germany after uh, after the surrender of the uh, of the Nazis, uh, and the only thing holding it back really was us, and uh, and that that mentality has maintained been maintained now uh, right up until uh, the present administration, and it's become. Uh, it's become uh, dogma for for the foreign policy and the military in in our in our uh, country, and to the point that that uh, all these so-called endless wars that we get into, uh, all most of them have their origin in some relationship to that that concept of America being the uh, the f- relatively uh, in- free. Uh, nuclear shield for the whole of the world, except the, against the Soviet Union, and 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 you know, one of the things that really really bothers me is that when these uh, uh, retired uh, uh, military leaders came out about what was it six months ago about uh, against Trump because of. Uh, they're saying that they shouldn't be he shouldn't be using or talking about using military forces uh in in American cities which of course goes back to George Washington i mean that that, that has been done consistently by almost every president in in history but the reason that that they that these guys are against it i think is because their whole uh status in terms of the Independence of the military, uh, the industrial military complex that uh, Eisenhower uh, uh, warned against is, is is actually at stake, and and if you start if you start reducing all of the uh, the uh, physical presence of of the uh, American troops in all these outposts of the world, uh, you have also begun <clears throat> to reduce the uh, the power and the prestige of all the uh, military leaders, and and to to a less extent uh, the the State Department itself. So uh, they and to me that that, that is is paramount to, to treason, because he is the the first thing it says in the uh, Constitution is, is the Bill of Rights. Uh, the, I think I think it's what the, the, the second, the third, or fourth, the Fourth Amendment. The fourth uh, uh, paragraph of the of the of the Constitution says that the, the president will shall be the commander in chief and and basically has power over the militia. So yeah, um, uh, yeah. Let me ask you a quick yeah. Let me ask you a quick question because uh, I mean I know what you're saying and I, I've heard this, but let me ask you a question. Does a retired military officer lose their right once they leave the military? You know, do they not have a right to 
one way or the other dictate what they believe to be the right or wrong course. You know, independent of what we think, you know, the, what the general said. Is there that, you know, do they, once well, they leave the military, are they not private citizens with the same rights you and me? Or is there different obligations? Well, uh, I think that I think that's a debatable issue. Um, they are, after all, for the most part, supported by uh, still by uh, 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 the American taxpayers. Um, I, I am personally familiar with with quite a number of uh, retired uh, flag officers of the United States uh, military, and uh, most of them believe that they are uh, that they are uh, within a certain boundaries. Uh, constrained not to talk against the President of the United States, not to talk against the Constitution, and uh, and, and there are other things that they can talk about. Uh, but, uh, uh, in fact, I know uh, one particular friend of mine is he won't even he won't even come on this my program because of he doesn't want to be uh, uh, talking about uh, his his views of those things. So. I, uh, it's certainly been a matter of courtesy, anyway. Yeah, well, I'm gonna hold on to that thought because we got about two minutes left. So very briefly, uh, the Dr. Larry Show will be following this show on the Block Talk Radio Network. So very briefly, want you you want to go ahead and advertise your show real quick? Yeah, we're, we're going to be ta- talking tonight about uh, uh, we're switching from a uh, uh, more theoretical. Uh, campaign we've had in the last few weeks about uh, the wealth gap we're uh, switching over now to uh, talking about some of the uh, the never trumpers that uh, and the republican party for the most part and the conservatives who uh, just uh, just uh, they're against trump because of uh, personal reasons and uh, we're sort of saying uh, it's time to make up your mind guys because What's more important, patriotism or uh, your peak? Yeah. And our well, guest is uh, Larry Larry Freeze. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, this is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files. I want to thank you, Dr. Larry, for coming on and adding your points of view. I appreciate you once again uh, adding to this show. This is Tom Donaldson on the Donaldson Files next Tuesday. And Wednesday. we'll be back next Tuesday on this network. Remember, 3 a.m.? 10 a.m. BachelorNews.Airtime.Pro. You can hear the show um, every day. This is Tom Donaldson saying good night and thank you. Trumpet, you know it's the Dr. Larry Show on the Bastion News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry Fidewa, your host for the hour, and uh, tonight uh, we are talking about uh, the Never Trumpers. And 
The uh, 45th President of the United States is opposed by several identifiable groups of people. First of all, there are the uh, true believers who believe unquestionably the portrait of an evil man whose character encompasses nearly every sin in the uh, imaginable, from pathological liar to greed-driven narcissistic buffoon to Russian skipai and so on. This description, uh, put forth by the large corporate press, both uh, written press and uh, and uh, television and radio, uh, which has its uh, own reasons for uh, the, how many, for what many know, is often completely without any factual basis. The uh, so the that's the true believers, but uh, then there's the second group is the the Democrat Party itself. Uh, this alternative universe is in, is inhabited by many true believers and led by the Democrat Party, which provides the organization, funding, and candidates to continually feed the narrative that they have created with the help of the deep state bureaucrats by leaks of both true and false information to the willing press. The most visible supporters of this view of Mr. Trump are the leaders of the Democrat Party, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and most of their followers in Congress. And a third group is the professionals. These leaders vary in their personal acceptance of the received party dogma, with Nancy Pelosi the most radical true believer, and the others more likely to realize the extent of their deception, and Nancy being, of course, too gullible to make such distinctions. The deliberate and thoroughly conscious liars of this narrative are the professionals who have justified their truly immoral behavior on the basis of the ends justifying the means. The the end in this case is their retention or regaining of the ultimate power of government, which for them means maintaining their personal future and fortune. They see Trump as a major threat to their own future, which they hope will include their total power over the United States of America. They began to taste this power in the Obama administration. And even a taste is addictive, and these people are addicted to to victory at all costs, even turning their backs on the Ten Commandments. Remember... Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And then there's the never Trumpers. There's the, the, uh, the namely the conservative and Republican voters who oppose Trump for personal reasons. The most prominent of these never Trumpers are the former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who is now a senator from Utah and the former Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich, and the Bush family, with two former presidents and the former uh, Florida governor, Jeb Bush, all have chosen different ways of expressing their anger at Mr. Trump, but all were deeply offended by his criticism during the 2016 campaign. The Bushes have maintained a dignified silence regarding Mr. Trump, 
although they have been rumored to quietly support opposition to Trump initiatives. Romney ran for the Senate after uh, Trump's election and has consistently opposed most Trump-supported legislation. Although, by the way, he has uh, all just uh, yesterday announced that he uh, will support the uh, uh, Trump nomination for the next Supreme Court justice. So uh, then Kasich, in the most direct, bad loser, bad loser member, uh, manner, has publicly and loudly endorsed Joe Biden for president. The man with the most uh, direct never-Trumper attitude was a Republican Arizona Senator John McCain, who defeated the uh, repeal of the Obamacare by casting the final deciding vote against it. Senator McCain died with a deep and permanent grudge against Donald Trump. However, his family, according to son-in-law Ben Domenech, has decided that um, they will let bygones be bygones with respect to the president and make their political judgments for the the, uh, good of the American people. Uh, By the way... (laughs) This has also been uh, changed because uh, Megan, uh, 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 the uh, daughter of, uh, of Senator McCain, has uh, just come out against, <laughs> come out for Joe Biden. So, so much for generalizations. But in their case, they have decided to support the president generally, except for her, because they believe that a victory of the left in this election will be disastrous for the American people. I have agreed with this judgment as I watched carefully the rapid growth of confidence and anti-American activity over the years of the Obama administration, starting with foreign policy and spreading to the weaponization of whole segments of the bureaucracy into instruments of silencing opponents of the administration, especially the IRS and eventually the Department of Justice although we did not realize the extent of that corruption until later. And the other agencies with direct uh, contact with the American people, which are too numerous to mention right here, the ultimate act of defiance was the nomination of Hillary Clinton for president, one of the most corrupt people ever to stand for public office. She and her husband sold uh, sold out the American interests to foreign countries for a personal fortune. At the same time, she was in charge of America's foreign policy as Secretary of State. But her platform was nearly pure socialism, the next step up from Obama's efforts to pull America toward that goal. Now we have an even more brazen attack on the American institutions and free market capitalism in the form of a very weak and probably corrupt benefit uh, candidate for president and a strong socialist uh, for a candidate for vice president. So never Trumpers for the good of the nation. It behooves you to put aside your private objections, and bruised egos, and vote for the greater good of the United States. You know better than to believe all the rubbish about Trump, but especially the doubts about his patriotism and dedication to American values. 
You are neither dupes nor cynics, but you should have enough patriotism to follow the example of John McCain's family and support America's last defense against the sinister forces that we have been witnessing in America's cities all summer and in the halls of Congress and the nation's courtrooms past generation. This is the last half of the ninth, century, ninth inning. The two-minute warning is blasting. If the socialists win this election, we may never get another chance. And that is my uh, opening statement for the, tonight. Uh, we have a special guest tonight is Larry Freeze. And uh, uh, Larry, welcome to the welcome back to the uh, the Dr. Larry Show. Well, thank you, Dr. Larry, for having me on the program again. I always appreciate the opportunity to be uh, on your show. And, uh, of course, your opening statement is rich with information that we could talk about for more than the hour of your program. Well, uh, we'll uh, get back to that. This is Dr. Larry, the Dr. Larry Show on the Bastard News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show, which is also the home of the Donaldson Files, with Tom Donaldson and Coco Konsky. And uh, they uh, discuss politics from the right and the left, while giving you entertainment news and guests. And listen live every Tuesday and Wednesday from 6 to 7 Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com slash Bachelor. And every day at 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Time at uh, thebachelornews.airtime.pro. If you're interested in having your own show or in advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Listen and stay informed. So we're uh, talking to... uh, uh, Larry Freeze tonight, and um, Larry, uh, I'm sure you have uh, uh, very uh, some real insight into this whole issue of the uh, the Never Trumpers, particularly since you are in Utah, uh, where uh, which is also the uh, the new residence of uh, Senator Romney, uh, who's a kind of a a very famous Never Never Trumper, but uh, who. <laughs> came over to the our side uh, uh recently. So uh, what 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 do you think about this whole thing? Well, this is um a very interesting topic. You know, the way that you've divided it up. You have the establishment itself which doesn't like Donald Trump because he is disrupting as a disrupted uh, politician, non-politician. Uh but disrupting the uh uh, the programs of Washington, D.C., and the way in which people 
have played politics for years and years. And so you have that group, which you addressed, and I'd like to get into that a little bit. And then, of course, you have the Never Trumper groups, who are combinations of both Republicans and Democrats. And as stated, you have the, they, they have personal issues with respect to Donald Trump. And because they, too, have been a part of Washington, D.C., which is that mutual assured destruction society that says, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, uh, we'll give you what you need, you give me what I need. And they effectively are interested in this, just on the opposite sides of the same coin. And they pretend that their politics are different when, in fact, their interests are the same. And yet they try to throw that uh, out to the American public as a level of uh, being able to create partisanship. Um, And so all of this is unmasked now with Donald Trump, whether it is the category of never Trumpers, if it is the press itself that favors socialism and the Democratic Party, or if it's the Democrats themselves because they don't like Donald Trump Uh, because he's a non-politician, never vetted, which means that he never took the oath to play the game of Washington. That's what that means when Nancy Pelosi says he was never vetted, and so therefore we cannot accept him. And that vetting is essentially a pledge to play the Washington game. And it all comes back to what you talked about in the very beginning of your opening statement, And that is the self-enrichment on the backs of the taxpayers and on the backs of other countries and foreign interests. And we can go through a litany of examples. I mean, we can start with uh, Katrina and how it upset the Gulf Coast and Barack Obama shook down uh, British Petroleum for a billion dollars. Where did that billion dollars end up? It never went on to the balance sheet of the United States government. It was held in a separate fund so that he could disperse it for purposes of influence and self-enrichment. It's not unlike what he did with Solyndra, where he gave them a half a billion dollars with a promise that $100 of it would come back to his campaign coffers. It's not unlike Joe Biden getting $1.5 billion for his son's Um, uh, venture uh, to invest in so-called American goods. That was nothing more than a payoff. It's not any different than using foreign aid as a means of influence of foreign governments to do what is the bidding of the U.S. government. It's no different than Burisma and having a son on, you know, the uh, board of uh, Burisma and taking a large finder's fee and then salary thereafter. Or Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton taking $130 billion uh, to approve the the deal which gave Russia uh, the 20% of uranium of the United States or a half a million dollar speaking fee in Russia. That's the mutual assured destruction society game that they play in Washington. Donald Trump never signed that deal. He came in as a non-politician, as a businessman, to set the course straight and to try to bring fiscal responsibility to close borders, to increase manufacturing, expand wages in the United States for all Americans. And so because he has called them on their game, he is 
uh, he is hated by the never Trumpers, the press, and the Democrat Party, Dr. Larry. Yeah, there there actually is, is a little more to that, though, and that is that there was a, <clears throat> a fairly wide, in fact, a very wide consensus that built up um, in in uh, Washington um, and both parties uh, as to uh, particularly the foreign policy and particularly even more uh, so the uh, the uh, policy toward Europe and 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 the extension of that to the um, the uh, Soviet Union um, and, and and that what became the really the dogma of all of the I mean there are a lot of there are a lot of ordinary good people that 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 work in these various uh, departments of the government, uh, and they truly believe that that uh, if you go against the received dogma of the United States for all those years, that you're you're actually uh, uh, doing a, a disservice to the country, and um, that really is the basis of what we're what we've called uh, the deep state uh and, and it's not altogether um malicious or uh, or uh, destructive it, it it turns out to be quite destructive in 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 the in, in uh in face of uh the uh, trump uh, uh deviation from all this but in addition to that though there's there's also a lot of um uh, disapproval of uh, Trump uh, in terms of his personality and particularly his language. Um, that uh, just you know it 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 has it has had a way of uh, offending uh, uh, the decorum, I guess you would say, uh, that people have come to expect of uh, public uh, servants. And uh, you know he's a, he's a tough-talking New York. Uh, uh, construction guy, and um, they just don't like that, and uh, they uh, it, it unfortunately has played into the uh, stereotypes that uh, that have been built up uh, by the press of all the uh, bad things that he supposedly uh, does or or has uh, has uh, espoused. So you know, it's it's not a it's not a black and white picture, but uh, my point is, but this is it's also, time. It's time to give up that, that that those personal problems because what we're looking at right now, in my opinion, and more and more, I, I've become convinced that if if the Democrat uh, if the Democrats win two of the three major uh, uh, election uh, uh, federal elections that are coming up. Namely, the uh, presidency and each house of Congress. Um, I think I think it's almost inevitable that we are going to become, uh, uh, in effect, a socialist country. And I think that the the problems that uh, they're talking about, um, in terms of energy and ter- I mean, uh, some of the really wild I- I- ideas that yeah. people have. Well, it's just let's, it's let's, terrible. Let's uh, take this one step at a time because I want to go back and address the issue about the personality of Donald Trump. Now, the personality of Donald Trump is what won him southwest Pennsylvania, southeast Ohio, and northern West Virginia, where many Reagan Democrats 
reside, the, the old-style Democrats that have not left the centrist element of the party. They have not taken the ride to the extreme left with AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar, and the others. They have remained in the middle, and they are interested in being able to go to work, coach their kids in their sports, pay their mortgage, buy their truck, go hunting. And those are the people that Donald Trump appeals to because he worked in the construction industry. He knows how to talk to those folks. He talks tough. And, yes, it's not necessarily a presidential decorum, you know, that he has effectively blown up, um, but he relates to that group in the center. And remember also that he had a TV program where he invited you into his boardroom on a weekly basis so that you could also get a sense of what that personality was and how he played it. He opened himself up to allow you to take a look at the inner sanctum of the Trump organization. So people were very familiar with what that personality was leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Nobody in the history of politics has ever been able to leverage a position of inviting you into the inner sanctum and then to move that out as a political advantage by talking to people in the center of the country. There are always those 33% to the far left that are going to vote Democrat, 33% to the far right that are going to vote you know, for the Republicans. But it's that center corridor that is so important, and he appealed tremendously to them because of business successes, personal invitations into the inner sanctum, language and toughness and to be able to put Washington on its heels because there was, you know, the cronyism that was so rampant in the uh, Obama administration, Dr. Larry. Yeah, but the, the, uh, that, that, middle, that middle third you're talking about is not a monolith. It, it does include the people you mentioned, but it also includes uh, the suburbanites. They, they, you know, the, uh, the slang for that is the ver- suburban women. <clears throat> but it also includes suburban men and and a lot of uh, a lot of people. So uh, that's true. And the they, suburban they, they, women they, have really know, they're, accepted they're the that... Donald Trump since the time of the election. They have moved from being appalled by his personal behavior to looking at his results as a as an administrator, and the results have allowed him. Uh, to gain favor with that particular demographic. They've enjoyed wage expansion, job opportunities, increases in uh, household net worth by $10,000 on average. They have seen the value of their um, retirement accounts increase until COVID. So they have accepted the results as opposed to the personality. Yeah, but I I, I, I think there's some... I don't think that's proven yet. I think this election will prove whether that's true or not. Uh, I know that a lot of people that are pro-Trump uh, believe it, and it probably maybe it is true. But I don't think it's um, a cer- I don't think it's a done a done deal. Uh, but we'll find out. And, and I'm also not uh, saying that uh, that Trump's. Uh, uh, language and and his uh, I, I think I personally find uh, find him that uh, you know there's some things I don't think he should have been saying, particularly when he attacks individuals. But um, but so be it. You know I mean the guy is what he is. He's seventy some years old. He's not going to change. 
and he has done a heck of a job in terms of uh, the results of uh, his activities as president. So, um, so he obviously has a lot of. I think he has a lot of redeeming qualities. Uh, but, but the other, the other. My point is, uh, no matter what your. Um, uh, well, we'll come back to that. Uh, uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Donzapop presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge, and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening. Yeah, the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century, and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donald the Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we have uh, a, a number of, uh, it's, it, this is also the uh, the home of a number of other uh, programs, and uh, one of which is the, uh, the Words and Songs of Inspiration uh, in which uh, it is, uh, you listen to the teaching and, and preaching and songs that will inspire you in these troubling times. Listen Sundays from uh, 7 a.m. to 8, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and Monday through Saturday at Eastern at Eastern Time at 6 a.m. at uh, the the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show or advertising, email us at uh, labachelor40 at email.com. Listen and enjoy us. And if uh, you have uh, any uh, options uh, still left to you uh, today, uh, please uh, dial in and and you can join our conversation at at, uh, 646 nine two nine zero one three zero and uh we'll be glad to, we'll be glad to hear your your opinions if uh if you uh, wish to participate otherwise you can just uh listen to uh what we are uh, already talking about so i was saying that my point is on this whole issue is that it's not a matter anymore i don't think of uh what your private personal opinions are uh, regarding uh, various aspects of uh, Mr. Trump, I think the issue is what is the future of the United States? Because I believe more and more that, that the future of the United States is at stake. That the kind of uh, violence and uh, and the disruption that we had this summer has been predicted by a number of people who uh, are talking about the uh, the wealth gap as being a uh, a permanent and uh, increasingly difficult situation, um, and uh, that uh, it represents uh, the anger of a lot of uh, particularly younger people uh, who have never known anything else, who have never known the the American dream. They've always known uh, only uh, the uh, the problems of uh, getting jobs, and uh, they they grew up basically came to. Uh, Adulthood uh, in the uh, the Obama recession, and uh, things have not been very good for them or for their parents. I, I just I wrote about this last week. Uh, 
Um, but at, at any rate, I, I think that uh, it's time to put all that aside and start saying, are we going to become socialists or capitalists? Yeah, and I think if you uh, take a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle of that paper, and you do just a simple compare and contrast. And you look at the empirical evidence, the statistics that have come out during the course of the Obama administration versus the Trump administration, um, setting personalities aside, just look at results. And, uh, you, and you hit the nail on the head when you said that there's a generation of people that grew up in the Obama administration, where they saw jobs leave the United States, manufacturing leave the United States, the highest level of social welfare dependence in the history of the country, the lowest, um, the lowest labor participation rate in the history of the company or the country, the lowest um, economic uh, GDP growth year over year. Now, year over year not to confuse it with quarter over quarter because there's a difference. Um, but year over year, never reaching uh, 2.5%. Um, and, so, and then you can go talk about the other issues related to um, economic expansions, whether it's manufacturing expansion, wage expansion, and other expansions that typically take place in an economy. And then you can turn around and on the flip side of that page – look at the other side and say wage expansion has increased significantly under Donald Trump until COVID. You had the lowest taxes that you've had in a quarter of a century under Trump, which puts disposable and discretionary income in the pockets of Americans. You had manufacturing increases, multiple opportunities to be able to pick from jobs that we hadn't seen in 10 years, lowest uh, level of social welfare dependence, highest labor participation rate, increase in home ownership that you hadn't seen in 10 years, and, and other data that we can literally do a compare and contrast. And if you look at that, you, the question always becomes, under which America would you prefer to live? And if you think about what the um, uh, left is offering today, it is offering movements toward more socialism, high, which is higher taxes. Uh, we already know that. Uh, higher government regulation. That's another area that uh, President Trump has significantly decreased in order for there to be a more business-friendly uh, environment with business growth. We're seeing it uh, through most of the parts of the country that there is business activity that is rebounding. Uh, coming out of the COVID uh, recession period. And so, you know, you can go back and forth and look at these. And if you look specifically now at the candidate options and what they're offering, once again, to your point, Dr. Larry, are we moving towards socialism, which is what uh, Bernie Sanders has um, injected into the Joe Biden platform and agenda, or do you want more of uh, choice and opportunity expansion and growth that we have seen under uh, President Trump previous to COVID? And so yeah, that I, is the question, Dr. Larry. Yeah, I, I think, though, that that there's another aspect to that, um, and that is that 
de facto, right now, we are still in a pretty severe depression, a recession anyway. Um, and we we had this brief, relatively brief period of expansion and um, and all of the uh, uh, good uh, benchmarks that you uh, mentioned. But then uh, we the COVID thing came along, and uh, we had to give all that up. And uh, there's a, there's a, uh, and then then all of the violence and 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 all of the uh, protests uh, really picked up after a, a couple of months of uh, of our COVID uh, shutdown. Uh, and and I think you have to look at that partly from the point of view of uh, the 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 good uh, economy and the and the good uh, effects. Uh, that uh, that the uh, president's uh, current uh, or policies in, in in his earlier administration were bringing about was relatively short-lived, and all of a sudden we're back into even a more severe uh, situation than than uh, we had uh, that we than we have had really since uh, 2008 and 2009, and so the people that that grew up under that, uh, they were, they, they looked at the, this brief, we had a brief recess and, and, uh, expansion period and, and a, a very, uh, desirable kind of, uh, uh, economy. And, and then all of a sudden we lost it and, and we haven't really regained it yet. We still have 11 million people that are unemployed and, um, and we have a failure of a lot of small businesses and so on. And these people are—they—they just—they they just, they just don't believe that uh, that that uh, great uh, economy that we uh, started to have is really coming back because they're living and they're they're experiencing right now the same kind and even worse type of deprivation and uh, lack of opportunity. That uh, that they grew up with, and that they and their parents really uh, grew, uh, had to deal with when all those jobs disappeared and so on. So uh, I think that that accounts for a lot of the the anger and 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 a lot of the desperation that we see in the protests. And I think we have to really be uh, careful about trying to uh, proje- pro- project our uh, on our. Uh, interpretation of what may happen or we think will happen in the future uh onto these uh onto these people and i i don't i don't know that they're right now it depends on the credibility of the president really and a lot of people that does uh, you know a lot of people believe in him as you point out and a lot of people don't believe in him and i think it's just still that's why i i think that this is still um, very much up in the air. Well, I think um, that you can ask a simple question, and that is, if you look at the states where the protests are taking on, what is the government that is the administration of that state <clears throat> versus other states that are having prosperity? Um, and those states, who are they uh, ruled. Uh, if, well, who are the who are the governors, and what parties do they belong to? Which you know states, based on their party affiliations, are doing better than the states that are not doing so well? 
And then once again, you can draw a line down the middle of a paper and go through each of those states and write down, you know, the administration of those states and which ones are performing well versus those that are not. And you can look at those that are right now administered by many of the Republicans. and You can see growth taking place in those states with limited or no protests versus the other states that are ruled by Democrats, which are highly protest-oriented, trying to create the chaos and separate voters from the economy that has at least on track to have a recovery. And so it becomes really what boils down to the political agenda of the parties and how they are trying to position people in either terms of fear and chaos versus the administration or a position of growth expansion and opportunity based on those states that are having that. I will tell you that the state that I'm sitting in right now compared to the state that I grew up in is the absolute picture of both of these. I grew up in Pennsylvania. What's happening in Pennsylvania in terms of their economic growth? I happen to be living in Utah and I can tell you that our unemployment rate is at about 3.5%. Our job growth rate is through the roofs. So we are 50,000 rooftops less than housing demand. And so the housing starts are going through the roof. Remember that that's a leading economic indicator. We have people moving here from California, from Arizona, from Nevada, and now from Oregon because this is a safe haven with job opportunities and affordable housing. And you don't see the kinds of protests here that you see in other places. You could do this. You could say the same thing for Idaho, and you can kind of march down the list. Now, I will just go also uh, for a moment and talk about the support and the growth for Donald Trump. And there have been uh, statistical well, let me, let evidences me and on polls. That. Let me comment on that point first. Uh, okay. I think that I think that one of the factors, though is that uh, in in the difference between the states that you uh, rec- that you uh, refer to is the uh, the fact that the, the major uh, po- the major population centers uh, are in fact uh, the ones that are under the duress uh, and and they do they do in fact have the similarities of of not only present but past uh, administration and, and really poor leadership in my opinion but nevertheless um, there, there's a lot of difference between Chicago and Salt Lake City and, and the main reason is the main difference is all the people and uh, there, it, it seems to be that that uh, I don't think we can take um, we can make the comparison uh, between uh, a relatively uh, low population state and uh, or city and uh, and the highly densely populated areas particularly in the midwest so i think that's one that, of the that's, issues that's like that's like saying that the principles of administration don't work in one case but they do in another it's kind of like saying that we excuse people from living the Ten Commandments because they live in a high population versus those that live in a low population. I mean, the principles of administration and leadership and taxing and being able to use those monies for the benefit of your population are the same regardless of the size. The principles are the same. It's how they are using those monies and whether or not uh, 
those administrations prefer to use forms of corruption or influence or diversion of money or things like that, which is typical of the po- of the population centers that we're talking about. Hold that thought, and we're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, my my only comment about your last point, which is uh, in, in theory is true, uh, but the fact is that most of the people, the actual people that live in these places, uh, they're not they're not directly responsible for uh, the the way that the way that their economy or their their place of their place of uh, employment or previous employment or unemployment work, um, you know, they're 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 just ordinary folks and, and they're kind of the uh, uh, they're kind of uh, stuck with whatever leadership they ended up having. So um, I don't think it's a matter of I don't think it's a matter of uh, uh, saying that they're innocent or guilty. It's just that uh, you know that's that's the way it is. Uh, any more than the people in Utah are directly responsible for the way that uh, the way that their situation is. So anyway, so uh, and and what it kind of boils down to ultimately is that we all individually get to make choices about what we do to preserve ourselves in tough times. If we can skill up then we should take advantages of doing so so that we become less subject to economic, you know, uh, ebbs and flows. So that's a, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But um, anyway. Right. That's more your banker hat, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as you know, um, uh, you know, I, I just have a very strong sense because of the way in which my family came to this country um, and pulled themselves up from their own bootstraps. I mean, my grandmother was a live-in servant to wealthy individuals in the main line of Philadelphia. My father grew up under that, uh, under under the guise of living in an attic apartment, you know, while my grandmother was the maid of this, you know, a, a few wealthy families. But yet, uh, over time. He went from being a window washer to a police officer. He went to school at night, ended up with a master's degree, and became an adjunct professor at Villanova University. And so we all get to make those kinds of choices in order to be able to pull ourselves up and to improve ourselves regardless of the influences that are going on around us. And so that's my orientation. And I see businesses come in on a regular basis when they have ideas of something that they want to do and they have that entrepreneurial spirit and they 
find ways to be able to gather money, whether individually or through an SBA loan or a bank loan or whatever the case might be. But those kinds of things are available to all of us. We live in the greatest nation in the world. And so where those economic opportunities present themselves and you decide to take advantage of them, we should be doing that on an individual basis, Dr. Larry. Well, that that really represents a whole uh, different uh, subject that that requires a lot of uh, a lot of uh, shall I say the philosophy of current events. <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, what I mean is, when you are in this economic expansion opportunity that uh, has been sort of ripped out from underneath us because of COVID, you can go back to those you know basic. Um, tenants of being able to make those kinds of choices. An expanding economy presents those opportunities. A shrinking economy by virtue of increase in taxes, increase in government regulations, increase in requirements because of the Green New Deal and other things like that hamper innovation and ideas and growth and opportunity and uh, funds available to be able to to do these kinds of things. It hampers, you know, the uh, innovation and the ingenuity of the American spirit. And so that's a part of the choice that we get to make in November. Do we want to be able to have an expanding economy or something that is going to shrink demand and opportunity? That's another choice, Dr. Larry. Yeah, and that's exactly the choice that we're talking about. And um, it seems to me that that the whole issue right now is: uh, Do we want to accept the uh, the road that is being uh, paved for us by the the, uh, the the Trump administration, or or do we want to do the uh, have it uh, as part of the uh, uh, the way that the uh, uh, Democrats are going, which seems to me to be pretty outlandish, and 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 uh, and and I think that that this is not the time to be talking about um, uh, the the uh, personality or the style uh, or the or the uh, uh, the characteristics of our uh, of our. Uh, president is this is the time to be talking about what is the future of america and uh that's that's basically the point that i'm trying to make all night well and i would also say that you know for those people that have had the opportunity to be able to interact with the president and to see what he has done let's just take you know the black population for a moment so you know prison reform has been one of the bills that was uh, what I would term a signature piece of legislation by this uh, president. And the people that have interacted with him have come together in common interest to be able to improve, you know, the black community, whether it is through prison reform or whether it was enterprise zones or other things to be able to help them get ahead. Um, there has been, and depending on what polls you look at, anywhere from a 10 to 25 percent increase in the black vote for President Trump. That's a significant number, because if the 10 percent alone comes out and votes for him, you know, that's a significant number that helps to kick him into a second term. 
But my point in all of this is for those that have had the opportunity to interact with him, they see that he operates a little bit differently than the normal politician. He listens. He consults. He brings people together to be able to uh, craft legislation that makes sense for a community. The same thing has happened with the Hispanic community. And again, polls are showing anywhere from an increase of 10 to 20 percent for the Hispanic community. So once again, if you have just the lower end of that poll at 10 percent, you know, now you have, you know, growth in addition to the diehard Republicans and some of the other centrist Democrats that we were talking about earlier that could end up you know, voting for President Trump based on the experiences that they're having in the legislation that is crafted for their specific communities, Dr. Larry. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I hope, I hope that I just hope that uh, that there are enough people that understand that point, the point of results, and the, rather than the uh, style. And personality. I just hope there are enough people that re- recognize that difference. Yeah. And, well, and, uh, and I think that'll make that'll make that'll that'll make the difference of the of the election, frankly. Well, I I think that it at least plays in his favor um, because those people also recognize that the Donald Trump that they sit down with that that listen to their needs that he's a different person than the person that is on Twitter a little different person than the one that is throwing out, you know, the name bombs of individuals and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So some of that is showmanship. Some of that is being tough. Some of that is breaking the mutual assured destruction society of Washington, DC. But uh, a lot of it also is that he says, yes, I might, you know, attack you over here, but I'm going to show you results over here. And so I have conversations on a regular basis with groups of people, and in some cases those groups are women that disdain Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Those women have now decided to hold their nose because they look at the results of the president and what his actions have you know, given the country, and they are more tolerable of the other piece in favor of what they have seen in terms of economic growth, wage expansion, net worth, the growth for, you know, the average American family and other results that play well for them, not the least of which is the opportunity to be able to have um, uh, pre-existing conditions follow you in your insurance coverages that he has uh, legislated now um, in insurance coverages so all of those things are the things that uh, he has been able to show as levels of execution outside of what otherwise has been um, the personality issues that you make reference to. Well, from your lips to God's ear, <laughs> I think uh, I think that if, if that is if that holds, then then he will win, maybe even win big. But, of course, you've got all these schemes going on against uh, the election process itself that uh, are being held up. I mean, this is getting very complicated because if they, if they, uh, these cases of 
expand extending the uh the uh written the written ballot uh uh validity for two two days or three days or a week or whatever that are the lower courts are beginning to approve if that uh that should go to the supreme court but if it does you're probably going to have a uh, four to four um uh situation unless the uh, uh this new justice can be approved in time and of course that's being uh that's the latest problem uh well and what and what you have pointed to is that they don't have any policies that they're putting forth to beat Donald Trump instead they're looking at processes as ways to be able to beat him processes versus a platform of ideas that they could sell to the American people that says that we believe our way of governing is better. You don't hear that conversation. Instead, you hear the things that you're talking about, that there has to be mail-in balloting, that there has to be ballot harvesting, that we're going to count votes after the election, whether there is a postmark on it or not, which opens the whole thing up for levels of fraud and padding the ballot. And then Nancy Pelosi has said, we are going to contest and I don't want Joe Biden to concede on the night of the election because they have a process that they, they hope to follow. Part of the reason for which they are fighting hard against this uh, Supreme Court nominee, the Supreme Court nominee has to be in place so that there can be not an even court, but a, a decision, a five to four decision. So the Supreme Court nomination at this point and confirmation is critically important to combat against the process that you've been referring to, Dr. Larry. Exactly. And and th- this is going to be a real contest of wills, I think, in this next uh, couple of weeks, because <clears throat> theoretically he's supposed to, uh, or at least he's announced, that he's going to announce his candidate at five o'clock on Saturday afternoon, and uh, they they have to then uh, the the vetting has already been, apparently been done uh, because of uh, the previous uh, candidacies, and uh, so they're, they're hoping that they can get the, this whole thing through in the next two or three weeks, and. Uh, and you know, of course, the Democrats are bound determined that that's not going to happen. So that's really going to be interesting to see who wins. Yeah, and historically, uh, they have shown that they have been able to um, get through the hearing process in a in periods of time that are shorter than the time frame that we have from now to election day. And so there is a precedence to be able to nominate that and vote uh, for this in the time frame which remains prior to the election. So, yeah, and yeah, I mean, that's, I, but that, what it really comes down to is who's got the votes? Because I don't think there's any question about all the Democrats are going to line up against the nominee and all the, right, almost all the Republicans, if you include your senator, um, <clears throat> are going to uh, line up in favor. And so the question really is, can you, can you get it to the floor and can you get it to get through, uh, you know, all the machinations of the uh, of the Senate? It, 
Right. Uh, and this afternoon, can do it, so maybe let's let's hope he can. Right. And this afternoon, Murkowski um, said that she is willing to uh, see who the nominee is and to go through the vetting process and uh, make a determination. So she has uh, not come out like Susan Collins and said that uh, Susan Collins is not going to support it. Murkowski is now saying that she wants to see who the candidate is, walk uh, through the vetting process, and she'll make a determination. So in theory, we have pulled then another person like Mitt, uh, uh, to join Mitt Romney over to the side of at least opening themselves up to the process. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, very important. Well, we're getting down to the end of the show here, and uh, we've uh, talked about a number of things, but uh, I usually like to try to give the uh, guests a, a chance to uh, talk about, uh, at least to mention, uh, whatever uh, uh, you, you might be uh, most uh, most concerned about at this point, whether it's on topic or not. So, uh, uh, Larry... Uh, What's uh, what's your what's your favorite topic right the uh, today? Well, I will tell you that of all the things that we've spoken about today, to me the most important thing comes back to the Constitution, and the Constitution says that a couple of things. Number one, we need nine Supreme Court justices because it's part of the check and balance system that Nancy Pelosi makes such a big deal about. And number two, it's important at this point that we do not get rid of the Electoral College which we didn't have an opportunity to talk about, but which is part of what the Democrats want to advance. Number three, I don't think we should be giving statehood to Guam, Puerto Rico, or uh, Washington, D.C., because that's nothing more than a move to create more um, Democrat-leaning voters. The way the country is established is the way that it has been established. And so those three things, I think, are also critically important uh, considerations in this uh, election cycle. Well, um, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show, and uh, I want to mention to our listeners that uh, you can uh, read my columns uh, weekly, and uh, uh, if you're not on my uh, on my list, uh, you, you can sign up. It's a, it's a no cost subscription. Uh, every week uh, we uh, we put out a uh, a new column, uh, and uh, the uh, second thing is that uh, we have a uh, uh, podcast that uh, is available uh, uh, twice uh, every uh, day for the uh, rest of the uh, for the rest of the uh, the week. Uh, actually, I think it's uh, six days a week. Uh, at one uh, at uh, one a uh, three a.m. and uh, and uh, ten a.m. Uh, every day at uh, the Bachelor News uh, dot uh, air 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 time dot pro and uh, also uh, we want to say good night and God bless America. This is Dr. Larry signing off.